Hello, my wonderful members, and if you're listening on the podcast as well, hello, thank you for tuning in to our continuation of the Salem Witch Trials. Let's continue with, well, what's left to continue with, I guess, the trials. Five more trials were followed that season, including four against men, John Proctor, John Willard, George Jacobs and George Burroughs. John Proctor and his wife, Elizabeth, were both found guilty, largely thanks to the testimony of their servant, Mary Warren. The conviction came despite two petitions in their support, with a total of 51 signatures. One petition attested to the good character and innocence of the Proctors. The second suggested that Satan was able to impersonate the innocent. While the petitions did not impress the court, they did agree to stay the execution of Elizabeth Proctor when she informed the court she was pregnant. Like the Proctor's damning testimony was provided against elderly George Jacobs by his servant, Sarah Churchwell, the others, including his own granddaughter, Margaret Jacobs, accused him as well. Back on May 11th, Margaret had confessed to being a witch and said that George Burroughs and her grandfather were as well. Later that day, at his initial examination, Jacobs had protested, Well, burn me or hang me, I will stand in the truth of Christ. Yet at his trial, the truth was nowhere to be found. Jacob was found guilty and sentenced to death by hanging. John Willard did not have a servant, but his in-laws were eager to testify against him, accusing him of killing his nephew with black magic. Like everyone before him, it was tried by the court of Oyer and Terminer. Willard was convicted. The last case of the session was arguably the most important of the entire witch trials, for the accused was Reverend George Burroughs. On August the 5th, a large crowd gathered for the event, including the Bay Colony's most prominent div- well, diviner, diviner, you know, increase mother. Because Burroughs was a minister, People consider him to be the ringleader of the witches that afflicted Salem. And in Chris's son, Earp Cotton, mothers put it, Burroughs had the promise of being the king of Satan's kingdom, now going to be erected. Anthony Checkley knew that in order to convict a minister, he would need overwhelming evidence. So he arranged for dispositions or testimony from about 30 people. The witnesses noted the evil actions of Burroughs' spectre and his superhuman feats of strength, and eight confessed witches described his being the head actor at the hellish rendezvous. The torments of the afflicted added to the high drama. When they tried to testify against Burroughs, they began choking on their words as if an invisible force rendered them speechless. Burroughs himself and their torments looked on and like the devil's work. Though he had no answer when Judge Stoughton asked him why Satan was 
so loath to have any testimony borne against you. After this, the bewitched claimed that four ghosts, visible only to them, interrupted the proceedings to confront Burris for murdering them. They were the ghosts of Burris' first two wives, as well as the wife and daughter of Reverend Deodat Lawson, another former Salem village minister who happened to be present in the courtroom. Burris' denials and efforts to defend himself did not impress the court, which saw them as well, to give assertions, contradictions and falsehoods. The minister was found guilty. Increase mother agreed. He would later write, Had I been one of his judges, I could not have acquitted him. Two weeks later, Burroughs, George Jacobs, John Proctor, John Willard, Martha Carrier were carted up the gallows hill for execution. Margaret Jacobs had repudiated her confession and accusations, but her grandfather and George Burroughs still stood convicted. A particularly large and distinguished audience showed up for the executions of Burroughs, the King of Hell, Carrier, his Queen, and the members of their court. The crowd was a bit unsettled, for being executed here, where four men who had previously been regarded as solid members of the community. These were far from stereotypical witches. Then there was the behaviour of the condemned, who maintained their innocence and forgave their accusers, as well as the judges and jury. Writing five years later, Robert Cleff noted that compelling speech George Butters made to impress his innocence complete with a perfect recitation of the Lord's Prayer a feat believed impossible for a witch. Burroughs' words brought tears to many eyes, and it almost seemed as if the throng would bring a halt to the proceedings. After Burroughs' execution, Cotton Mather spoke to the crowd, reminding them that the former Salem village pastor was not an ordained minister, and that the devil had often been transformed into an angel of light. The reassurances of such a Respected authority speaking from horseback claimed the crowd, and the executions continued. Caliph claimed that the bodies were hastily thrown into a shallow common grave, leaving Burroughs' chin and hand and someone else's foot above the ground. If true, this may have been an expedient to get the bodies underground as quickly as possible, as the executions took place during a sweltering heat wave. Several evenings earlier, a friend of Samuel Sewell's had passed away and been promptly buried the next day because his body could not be kept in extreme weather. Regardless of how they were buried, some of the dead did not lie long on Gallows Hill. In his will written while he was in prison, John Proctor specifically bequeathed my body unto decent burial at the discretion of my executors. This last request was apparently carried out, for according to the family and neighbourhood traditions, the Proctor and Jacob's families removed the bodies of their loved ones under cover of darkness and secretly reburied them near their homes. A similar tradition in the nurse family suggests that family members removed the body after the death and then they would bury it in the family's cemetery. Despite the executions, 
more people continued to be accused, and a growing number of them were confessing, suggesting a immense conspiracy. On July the 15th, Anne Foster said, there were 25 witches at the Sabbath she attended. 25! And then, a week later, Mary Lacey Jr. testified she had seen 27. By the end of August, three confessors agreed that there had been 200 witches present at that Black Sabbath, and other ones, and others reported hearing of more than 300 active witches in the region. The pace of accusations quickened as well. In August and September, formal charges were placed on another 40 alleged witches. Only a couple of Salem residents were accused, but the afflicted of the Salem village continued to cry out on the people in Andover and other surrounding towns. They were increasingly joined in their denunciations by the growing number of confessed witches. By the middle of September, 42 confessors had named others as witches. As the accusations climbed, more opposition against the proceedings began to surface. Alarmed, alarmed by the charges against his neighbour, Mary Bradbury, Salisbury's leading magistrate, Major Robert Pike, wrote to express his concerns to Judge Jonathan Corwin. Pike, a fellow member of the Governor's Council, carefully laid out his concerns about spectral evidence, although... There was disagreement on the subject. He believed that the devil could assume the shape of innocent people. He worried that such controversial evidence was given too much weight in the trials. This led him ultimately to conclude that the court should rather let a guilty person live till further discovery than to put an innocent person to death. Cotton Mather faced similar questions about spectral evidence and growing concerns about the proceedings spurning him to write a booklet that would serve as a defence of judges and the entire judicial process at work at Salem. He had enough written by September the 2nd to share a partial draft with William Stoughton. Despite the murmurs of concern, the Court of Oyer and Termina met again in a two-week session starting September the 6th. The first week it heard six more cases, six more, with everyone, Mary Bradbury, Martha Corey, Mary Este, Alice Parker, Anne Pudita and Dorcas. Hall found guilty and sentenced to hang. Este's sister, Rebecca Nurse, had already been executed. And a third sister, Sarah Cloyce, had been accused and was in jail. Bradbury's case exemplifies just how out of control the proceedings had become. For 20-year-old Mary was a well-respected woman of high social rank, the wife of Captain Thomas Bradbury, the leading citizen of Salisbury. At her trial, she had presented a petition signed by 118 friends and neighbours attesting to her religious devotion and good character. Her minister, James Allen, testified that she had lived according to the rules of the gospel and practised life full of works of charity and mercy to the sick and the poor. Furthermore, he had never seen or heard anything of her unbecoming the profession of the gospel. Salisbury's magistrate, Major Pike, affirmed Alan's testimony based on having known Mary for about 50 years. 
trying to keep up with the growing number of accusations, the court heard nine more cases the next week and produced nine more convictions. Abigail Faulkner, Margaret Scott, Wilmot Red, Mary Parker were tried, found guilty, sentenced to be hung. The other five, Anne Foster, a daughter, Mary Lacey Sr., Samuel Wardwell, Rebecca Ames and Abigail Obbs had pled guilty at arraignment. When Samuel Wardwell's confessions were read to him, he recanted and changed his plea to not guilty. He was quickly tried, convicted, sentenced to death. Those who held in their confessions were likewise condemned to the gallows. The court of Iron Terminer adjourned on Saturday, September the 17th, and was not scheduled to resume its deliberations until November. However, there was still the case of Giles Corey to resolve. Indicted in early September along with his wife, Martha, Giles had pleaded not guilty, yet he refused to answer the next customary question. Would he be willing to be tried by God and my country, that is, by a jury? In the absence of his answer, technically, the trial could not proceed. So, the office of the court then undertook the traditional, but very rarely used, English practice known as pin fute, it's you, meaning strong and hard punishment in the legal old northern French of the day. They laid Cory down between boards and placed progressively more rocks on top of the planks to literally press an answer out of him. He still refused to reply to the question as they piled on rocks through tradition. Has it that Corey's last words were more weight? This seems in keeping with that was known of the stubborn and quarrelsome old man who demonstrated such contempt for the court. The horrendous weight finally crushed him to death. Robert Khalif noted that near the end, Impressing his tongue being pressed out of his mouth, Sheriff George Corwin, with him came forced in it again. Like Wardwell, Corey had seen the fate of the others brought before the court, and he believed that his trial would end with his execution. So Corey rather chose to undergo what death they would put him to. The day before his death, the Salem town at church excommunicated at Giles. A week earlier, the Salem Village Church had excommunicated his wife, Martha. Three days later, on September the 22nd, Martha Corey was among the eight convicted witches who were hanged. She was joined on the gallows by Margaret Scott, Mary Etsy, Alice Parker, Anne Pudita, Wilmot Red, Samuel Wardwell and Mary Parker. Several of those condemned in the last court session avoided execution, including the confessed witches, Rebecca Ames, Anne Foster, Mary Lacey Sr. and Abigail Hobbs. Mary Bradbury had received a reprieve, though this was temporary measure, so her supporters eventually organised her escape from jail and put her into hiding. Abigail Faulkner was pregnant, so like Elizabeth Proctor, she received a state of execution until after she gave birth. However, 
Both women faced daunting odds of surviving pregnancy and childbirth under the terrible conditions in the Massachusetts prisons. The executions gave voice to a growing opposition to the trials. The quiet dignity and innocent earring of the August victims had led many present to reconsider the guilt of the accused. Meanwhile, the September proceedings seemed even more problematic. In two weeks, the court had heard 15 cases, convicted 15 people. It seemed like a rush to judgment, especially when the evidence in some cases was not as strong as it was in the even earlier prosecutions. Judges seemed to increase and rely on spectral evidence, and many observers must have been taken aback by the treatment of Giles Corey. Worse, no one who confessed to being a witch had been executed, with the exception of Samuel Wardwell, who recanted his confession. Only those who refused to confess met death. Then there was the uneven treatment of the condemned 15. Yes, 15 had been condemned, but only eight had been executed. Furthermore, there were signs of God's continued displeasure. On July the 5th, a large fire in Boston's North End consumed approximately 15 houses, shops and warehouses. Later that month, Samuel Sewell complained of a great drought. Then on August the 4th, news reached Boston of a horrible earthquake that had decimated Jamaica. The earthquake would cause two-thirds of the city of Port Royal to sink into the Caribbean Sea, destroying approximately 2,000 buildings. Sewell reported that 1,700 people had perished. Another 2,000 would die afterward from injuries and disease. In all, more than half of the population would succumb. One of the largest English cities in Americas was all but gone in the disaster of biblical proportions. Meanwhile, the outbreak continued to spread outward from Salem and Andover. In September, people were accused in Marblehead, Reading, Gloucester. Apparently, one person was even cried out upon in at Sudbury, 30 miles to the southwest of Salem, as the accusations started to decline in Andover. Gloucester threatened to become the new centre of witch hunt, with nine people accused in the seaport in the fall. There seemed to be no end in sight. Increase mother soon took a series of actions to bring a halt in the trials. In early October, he presented the manuscript of his soon-to-be-published Cases of Conscience to Governor Phipps. The treatise contained a forceful argument against the use of spectral evidence and the touch test. Fourteen ministers signed the book in support of Mather, and if Phipps had not received the manuscript by August 9th, he surely heard of it that Sunday, when the minister read parts of the manuscript from their pulpits. The next week, Mather travelled to Salem Jail, where many of the Andover witches retracted not only their confessions, but also their accusations of the alleged witches. Mother had been accompanied to the Salem jail by Boston merchant Thomas Brattle. On October the 8th, Brattle had written a lengthy letter to an unnamed minister 
critiquing the trials and raising the widespread discontent about the trials among political leaders, magistrates and ministers in the religion and region. Among those specifically named was Samuel Willard, the influential pastor of Boston's Third Church, who had initially voiced concern about the trials and spectral evidence in several sermons back in June. Willard wrote the preface to Mathers, Cases of Conscience, and in late October he would publish his own critique of the trials. Amid the flurry of publications, on October the 12th, William Phipps wrote to William Blaithwaite, Secretary of the Privy Council. This was the first time that Phipps had reported on the witch trials to the superiors in England. He told them it was forbidding any more charges of witchcraft except under extreme circumstances. For Phipps noted, I found that the devil had taken up his the name and shape of several persons who were doubtless innocent and to my certain knowledge of good reputation. Phipps did not say so in the letter, but one of the victims recently cried out upon was his wife, Lady Mary Phipps. He also banned any future publications on the subject. I've also put a stop to the printing of any discourses, one way or other, that may increase the needless disputes of people upon this occasion, because I saw a likelihood of kindling an inextinguishable flame. Phipps' actions were clearly influenced not just by accusations, against his wife, but also by the growing opposition among those whose opinions mattered, particularly increased Mather, his minister, confidant, and a close political ally. When questioned during the October 29th sessions of the legislature as to whether the court of Oyer and Termina would stand or fall, Governor Phipps replied, it must fall. There will be no more, yes, no more sessions of the court. So, that's the next part of the Salem Witch Trials. So if this legislation passes, then yeah, it would mean that. It would mean definitely there would be no more, um, no more sessions, I guess. No more fully round accusations and widespread panic so we shall see when we come back what comes of that of course because they can say things draw things up but will they actually do it we do not know yet thank you for listening and many blessings